Ukrainian identity versus Putin's tyranny. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of UkraineWorld.org. I was invited by the podcast Silicon Curtain and its host Jonathan Fink to speak about Ukrainian identity, Europe and Russian imperialism. This episode is a recording of our conversation. Perhaps the most perverse Russian invasion narrative is that Ukraine is not old and is not distinct from Russia in any case. But Ukraine is not just a footnote to Russian imperial history. As a nation, it is old. It's different and diverse. Just as it went unrecognized by Russia, it has not been understood or recognized by the outside world either for a variety of reasons. A hundred years ago, nobody cared about Ukraine or its disappearance as an independent state. But that has now changed. Putin's tyranny and violence have accelerated the evolution of Ukrainian identity and increased the pressure for social, political and economic change. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is now available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe and share the channel uh, with your friends uh, to help them find our fantastic speakers. And of course, if you enjoy the content, do please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Volodymyr Ermelenko is a Ukrainian philosopher, essayist, translator, doctor of political studies, candidate of philosophical sciences, and senior lecturer at the Kiev Mikhail Academy. He is laureate of the Yuri Shevyelov Prize 2018 and of the Petra Mikhail Award 2021. Ermelenko was born uh, in Kiev to a family of philosophers. His father was director of the Institute of Philosophy. His mother taught philosophy at the Kiev Polytechnic Institute. In 2020, together with Tetyana uh, Aharkova, Ermelenko started the cult podcast dedicated to defining epochs in the history of culture and cult authors who've had a great influence on the development of literature and culture. He is also a prolific podcaster on the Ukraine World Channel and his compelling Explaining Ukraine series of interviews, to which we will, of course, provide links in the description of the video below. Volodymyr, it's a huge pleasure and a privilege to welcome you to the channel. Thank you, Jonathan. Great pleasure to be here. Before we dive into these issues of identity, culture, literature, and of course, Russian imperialism, um, I want to ask a, a bit of a personal question about the war. And how do you find the sort of the balance uh, and the energy in this very uh, stressful time um, to come out with, you know, what I take from your podcast is, is, is a kind of strong optimism when in fact, you know, I would have thought that despair and anger and falling into those are, are a real risk at this time. I cannot say that this is just uh, about optimism. I think it's it's both. I think it's 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 very different emotions that we are going through, and uh, it's also the emotions of despair. It's also the emotions of. Uh, big sorrow and big compassion to our compatriots because we travel a lot uh, through Ukrainian territories. We go to deoccupied territories. We go very close to the front line. We see all those destroyed villages. We talk to people who lost uh, 
members of the family. So we are kind of not in this, uh, you know, hyper-optimistic mood that sometimes you see in the media or in social media. We try to avoid that. We, we try to we try to avoid virtuality. Actually, I think one of the one of our the biggest uh, dangers of our time is this virtual world, which just covers the the real world. I we still believe in reality. We still believe in 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 material reality, in facts, in in something you can see, you can hear, you can smell, and uh, therefore we try to make our podcast um, with my wife Titiana Harkova very very kind of ob- objective as far as we can uh but on the other hand we cannot we cannot really uh we, we cannot allow ourselves to be in despair we cannot allow ourselves to be too doubtful because uh, for us it's just unacceptable because um the doubts in uh, in in Ukraine in Ukrainian capacity to resist in Ukrainian capacity to win uh, is not a cognitive thing for us. It's, it's not a. It's, it's not a. It's not a thing uh, 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 of a theory of knowledge. It's a rather thing, existential thing. If we doubt too much in ourselves, in our nation, in our neighbors, in our soldiers, then uh, this will open up this way for 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 despair, for defeat, and we cannot allow ourselves to do so. Therefore, uh, of course. Uh, we we try to, however realistic we try to be, and critical of of things which are going on, and even critical of Ukraine itself sometimes because it's very important to have this critical eye, of course to believe and to have faith uh, in our struggle. And of course, social media can seem very cartoonish at times. Pools of of you know the darker corners of social media are, are also sort of offensive and aggressive. Um, but also Russian propaganda itself, taking this idea of sort of doubt, Russian propaganda tries to work into the cracks of doubt, doesn't it? It tries to work into the cracks of, uh, uh, you know, dispute and divisiveness. Uh, and at its heart, I think Russian propaganda states that there is no objective truth and it tries to foster uh, indifference and apathy uh, amongst people. Um, so what is the role of uh, you know, writers, thinkers, philosophers, cultural figures like yourselves in dispelling these nihilistic sort of tenets of uh, Russian propaganda? I think the word you use, nihilistic, is the key word here. Uh, so I, I, don't really, I don't really agree with... Uh, with the idea that Russian propaganda is only about seeding doubt and seeding division, we always kind of have dispute with this about this with my good friend Peter Pomerantsev, who one of the first to launch this idea: nothing is true and everything is possible. Uh, because uh, I tend to say that this is only part of the propaganda. This is a uh, propaganda. Uh, the the this divisiveness and this seeding doubt is just directed to. Um, to people whom whom Russia doesn't expect to persuade, the Western world, for example. Uh, whereas when we are talking about people who Russia does want to persuade, its own citizens, Ukrainian citizens at a certain moment of time, now people in non-Western world, I mean, this is a, there is a clear message, there is a clear, uh, clear, very dogmatic 
dogmatic idea, uh, very much in line with the, with the Soviet uh, Soviet propaganda, and uh, and we need to understand that. So uh, I think that uh, again, uh, what is key in your question is this word nihilistic. Uh, uh, I do think that uh, that part of the Ukrainian struggle is the, the struggle against nothingness. And uh, and therefore Ukrainians are really reflecting upon these uh, these violence, the cult of violence, which is present in contemporary Russia, but also was present in 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 other parts of the Russian history. And when we see how Ukrainians are coming back to life, and and this is uh, this is what we describe all the time in our podcast in explaining Ukraine, when we are describing how. People come back to destroyed villages. How they cultivate their land, how they cultivate their flowers, uh, even even when the the houses are destroyed. Uh, I I think there is something in this love for life which is very much opposite to this Russian idea that you you win the war only by sending hundreds of thousands of people for for death uh, when you cruel not only towards your enemy but towards your own people. And this is a pattern that we see not only in this war, but we see in the Second World War, how the Soviet Union fought the Second World War, how people like Zhukov were, uh, were waging that war, really without any compassion to human lives. And I think that one of the aspects of this war is this uh, struggle of Russian nihilism against a certain defense of, of life and existence. And this is a very important theme today in particular, isn't it? Because the way in which the Second World War is commemorated has really diverged uh, in the sort of post-Soviet world from the way Ukraine remembers it in its sort of messy complexity, trying to reevaluate it. Whereas in Russia, it's been turned into a cult of violence, a cult of death, a cult that looks backwards rather than forwards. And of course, today is Victory Day. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we don't know if there'll be parades and so on. But I think that's probably not the most important issue. It's the um, it's it's turning violence into a kind of institution and embedding it throughout Russian society, which is the incredibly scary process that has taken place not just since the full-scale war, but over the last couple of decades? Look, I, I think there are two extremes of commemorating any war. One extreme is to have this cult of victory, which just forgets about victims. And this was the Soviet type of commemoration, because actually people were not really telling the stories about the war. Uh, the literature and the films about the war were rather covered by propaganda, except for some differences, uh, some uh, some exceptions. We would rather have uh, the monuments to unknown soldier than the uh, the attempts to remember people by name. And we were in Soviet Soviet Union completely erased the history of the Holocaust, and we still still are in this in this um, yeah, very unfortunate amnesia up until today uh, but uh, so this heroic uh, myth just erased the the victims and this is the, the memory for the victims and I, I think this is something that Ukraine was really struggling against in the past decades when it aligned itself with the more European, way of looking at war rather commemorating the victims than praising the the victory 
and considering the war as primarily a huge tragedy. So the this idea of never again was much more present in Ukraine than the idea of Russia, we can repeat. This is one of the slogans of Russian propaganda, we can repeat, meaning that we, they can repeat the Second World War. And that's what they're doing right now. So basically the, the problem of today is that Russian slogan has won, right, over the European slogan. We can repeat uh, has won over the slogan never again. And uh, yesterday we had uh, a, a good moment when Ukrainian writer Oksana Zabushka wrote that for the 8th of May, rather the slogan should be never say never, right? So it's, it's, it's bringing us back to the idea that violence can really repeat and we need to, uh, of course, fight against it. But on the other hand, there is a, a, another, I think, also deadlock in the commemoration of the war. It's just focusing only on victims. And I think this is something that Europe went through uh, starting from maybe 1960s, 1970s. So there is one, this humanistic uh, way of it, of course. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a danger in this, that if you only change your discourse from the heroism to victimhood, then you cut the ability to fight. And uh, if Ukraine didn't have its cult of heroes, the word hero is, is really obsolete, I think, in Europe. And this is bad. Because uh, if you, if you don't, don't have this idea that at one moment of history you need to have people who go to the front line, people who defend your country, people who we actually call heroes in the ancient Greek uh, maybe uh, 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 version, then if, if you don't have, you just become defendless. And I think it's very important to combine the two. So to have this idea that you need to fight, but to also to understand that the war is not a chess game, the war is not a, a football match, and, and there are victims, both on civilians and, uh, and military. So combine this decisiveness to fight and compassion, I think this is, uh, this is something which is very important. And I hope that Ukraine is kind of a, on this moment, so it, 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 it keeps both. And I think that also echoes, you know, a, a tendency since the 90s and with postmodernism and so on and the, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's been an assumption that liberal values would be triumphant. There's been an implicit assumption in the West that democracy is eternal and we've forgotten that it had to be fought for, that it's fragile uh, and, and can even be temporary, uh, as you say, if people don't step up and actually in some way uh, you know, fight for, for for values and accept there are objective values that, that need to be sort of defended. Um, you know, quite apart from the war and 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 you know, defending yourselves for for sheer survival. Do you think Ukraine is also reminding us that our democratic institutions need to be constantly renewed and need to be fought for uh, every generation? Look, I think a, a mistake of the nineteen nineties in Europe and in America was that. Hegel won over Aristotle, to say in the philosophic terms. Uh, Fukuyama won uh, against, uh, let's say, people like maybe Leo Strauss or something, somebody else. So it's a paradox that in, um, in, in European political philosophy in the 20th century, 
there was always the idea that we need to come back to Greeks. Uh, we, you, you have this idea in Hannah Arendt, you have this idea in, um, in, in many other, uh, other figures. And why it is important to come back to Greeks, to Aristotle, for example? Because Greeks and Romans understood very well that democracy is fragile. I mean, if, if you look at the classic uh, vision of Aristotle, how the politeias, the polities are evolving, he would tell you that, of course, democracy, or he would call it politeia, uh, the, the, the power of the, 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 the biggest number, at least in his conception at the time, uh, of people is good, but it will always, uh, uh, it was, it will always de degenerate. And uh, Aristotle and then Polybius... Uh, and then this is a long history of European political thought, which comes until Machiavelli and Montesquieu, which was totally forgotten, unfortunately, despite the fact that we all know those names. I mean, everybody knows Machiavelli, but everybody reads Il Principe, uh, the prince, rather than his works about republic. And, um, and the problem is that these classic philosophers uh, describe very, very in detail how democracy fails. Democracy fails when uh, people forget about uh, the fact that they fought for freedom, that they take the freedom for granted, and that uh, then when they consider their po political and civic freedom as only their right and not their obligation. So they consume it. Instead of uh, instead of promoted, defended, etc. And uh, what happens in this situation? We have a society which becomes very egoistic, where people confuse the idea of common good with the idea of their private good. They they become disenchanted, and then they uh, uh, vote for a a tyrant. A tyrant who comes and says, okay, I will fix all your problems. This is what happened in the United States with Trump. This is what, what is happening in, in some European countries as well. Uh, so in a way, I, I think that uh, there is this myopy in the Western world and it, it, is, it is related with, with thinking and uh, with kind of a myopy towards uh, European own intellectual tradition. And in this sense, uh, yeah, I do think that Ukrainians, as, as for us, the liberty freedom is something which is not granted, which is not guaranteed, which not only you need to fight for on manifestations, demonstrations on Euromaidan, but you need to fight it even in the war. I, I do think that uh, this is a, a big reminder uh, to the democratic world that, uh, that of course, is, there is nothing inevitable. And uh, therefore, I admire such thinkers or writers as Margaret Atwood, who, who points at the fact how democracies can de degenerate into autocracies, even at the heart of the, of, of the democratic societies. Let's turn then to origin stories, because while we're in the sort of classical world, there's this fairly absurd concept, isn't there, um, that Moscow is somehow the third Rome. Um, but if we look at how Rome treated, uh, you know, Greece, it, it treated other cultures with a certain degree of, of reverence, especially uh, Greek culture. And the Roman Empire subsumed other cultures and dominated them, but it didn't extinguish 
uh, every aspect. Um, you know, if you go to Roman Bath, you'll see local gods like Aquasulis incorporated into the Roman pantheon and so on. This title that that, that uh, Muscovy has has sort of appropriated for itself comes in a tradition of appropriation of cultures and a very different kind of imperial model than the Roman one, and that is to oppress and extinguish. And where it doesn't extinguish, it's to place other cultures and nationalities very firmly in a in a sort of second tier. Um, so I'd like to sort of discuss that for a second and then go to the sort of founding or origin myths, because what I really want to focus on is, you know, origin myths of Ukraine and why it is a, an old historic society um, and how that's been sort of distorted and perverted by the sort of myths of, of the uh, Muscovite Empire. So um, I, I like this idea of uh, my friend, French philosopher Rémy Braque. Well, my friend, I cannot say that, but uh, a very respected man whom I met recently in, in Paris. And uh, we've talked very, very, very warmly. Um, the idea of exterritoriality, eccentricity, I'm sorry, eccentricity of Europe. And he precisely talks about the Rome and how Rome was trying to incorporate the Greek culture. And his idea is that this is this is European way of life. Maybe it's not only European, but but European um, in a in a very important sense of the term that uh, every new phase of the development of cultural development, every every new phase of civilization tries to incorporate the, the, the previous one, not to destroy it, but rather built upon it. And therefore we have, a very interesting situation when we have a Greek culture then taken over by the Roman culture, then then taken over by the uh, Christian culture, which goes much farther to the north, then taken over, I don't know, by, by British culture, but then by American. And all this, we, we, we practically see America based upon the idea of Roman values or, or Greek values. In this way, I, I do think that Russia is different because uh, we see that uh, Russia was trying to annex the past, annex the past of Kiev, annex the past of of Kremlin, Crimean Tatar culture, annex the past of uh, what was happening in in um, yeah, in the steppes of the Black Sea and Azov Sea. You can see by this mythology of Russians when we're talking, they're talking about right now about this region of Novorossiya and the new Russia, which is, which has a deep, very interesting culture, the the the, the culture of Iranian Iranian speaking tribes, the culture of Turkic speaking speaking tribes, the culture of Ukrainian Cossacks, the culture of Kremlin, Crimean Tatars. And all this is erased uh, and uh, said that, well, this history of this region starts only with Catherine II, and there, there was nothing before. The same actually with Kiev, because one of the reasons, uh, one of the causes of this war is a very psychoanalytical cause, actually very, very profoundly psychological and even psychiatric maybe, that uh, at a certain moment of Russian history, Russia said that the history of Kiev is my history, uh, and 
the history of uh, Rus of Kiev is actually Russian history. The, the the history of a state which which didn't exist at the time, the history of of city which didn't exist at the time, uh, etc. And I, I'm always saying that look, it's a paradox that the myth of Aeneas, the key founding Roman myth, and the Aeneas as the key Roman <laughs> Roman hero as opposed to Greek Odysseus. And I think we can see this in, in Virgil's Aeneid, a very interesting thing, how Romans were thinking, how Virgil was thinking, how Augustus was th- were thinking at that time. So the idea was not to erase the, 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 the story of Odysseus, but rather to say that we have a competing story and we have a better story, which Aeneas in, in many ways repeats the story of Odysseus, but actually is more successful because A, he comes from those who were defeated, but he was, but he overcome this defeat, the Trojan defeat. And secondly, he did not come back to this place, but he just brought his place to somewhere else. He founded something different, something new. And this is a profound Roman myth here. And I was, I was wondering why Russians did not take this myth for themselves, because it would be logical to say that, yeah, Kiev is a kind of a Troy. Troy was uh, burned down by the Mongols, and then it you know, transferred itself to a new Rome, which is Moscow, etc., etc. Whereas the Aeneas myth is much more important for Ukrainians, uh, from Kotlarevsky onwards, than for Russians. Aeneas is really a, a kind of a... Uh, a very paradigmatic uh, image in the Ukrainian literature and culture. And why Russians didn't take it, I think, because precisely because they 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 did not want to present this part of Ukrainian culture as competing story. They wanted just to erase it. They wanted to say, no, 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 this is not competing story. This is our story. Odysseus did not exist. It was all about Aeneas, you know. That was, I think, that was the, the thing, and therefore uh, we are trying to now regain our identity, our past. And you know, this might seem like a generalization, but in in living and, and traveling around Russia, it sort of it struck me, and especially, you know, the last couple of years, that the process you describe of assimilating uh, other stories and traditions is quite an urban one because if you live in a you know an ancient city and you'll be aware of maybe sort of layers of history that have come before you know your epoch whereas it's always struck me that um despite you know the space race despite industrialization despite all the trappings of modern civilization um russia's political system is at the level of sophistication of a you know viking raiding party it's 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 something that harks back to many centuries ago and actually has more akin to a kind of subsistence agriculture rather than you know a, a, an urban type civilization is there anything there that that helps explain its behavior because famously people like Churchill have described Russia as a as an enigma etc um but you know how how do we or what kind of models can we find in human history that explains uh, Russia's lack of let's say political sophistication so um, i think coming back to this assimilation thing i think it is very important to to understand in which way the, the Russian imperialism is different from uh, the British imperialism, let's say. And and this is my argument, is that 
the British or French imperialism or Belgian or Dutch imperialism were colonizing the distant nations. <clears throat> and in them, uh, the idea of difference was the, uh, was the tool of domination. So the, uh, the Western imperialism tells to the uh, colonized cultures that you will never be the same as me. You will never be the same as us. And therefore you have these old racist theories which were born rather in Britain and France and Belgium than in, than, and only afterwards they passed to Germany. Uh, whereas Russia is, is different in that sense and therefore kind of a Western intellectuals doesn't have a, sometimes a tool to understand it because uh, there is no... Uh, clear idea that you will never be the same as me. There is an opposite idea that you will ne never be different than me. That's what Russians are telling to Ukrainians, to uh, to Belarusians, but also even to, to, to people who are ethnically more different. Uh, so the idea that you will never be the same as me, and the it's not the difference which is a tool of domination, but rather the idea of sameness which is a tool of domination. And why is that? Uh, my answer is that we have a paradox that there is a Russian nationalism, but there is no Russian nation. Uh, Russian nation as, well, the idea of the nation as constructed primarily on the horizontal level. The, the, the level of, uh, the, the level of not a, an attitude to, towards a, a monarch, a sovereign, but the relation between citizen and citizen. And, uh, this is what what happened in 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 the European countries in late eighteenth early nineteenth century. I don't think that happened in Russia actually, and this is uh, a, a difference with Ukraine, with Poland, with uh, with some other nations of the nineteenth century, is that they were uh, while. For example, Poles and Ukrainians were lacking a state, and therefore they were defining themselves in terms of other than the state, in terms of other than hierarchy. For Ukrainian intellectuals of the 19th century, the key idea was that why, why the future is within us because we lack hierarchy. We have the horizontal relations. And uh, Russia lacked it, I think. Uh, therefore... Uh, we have a paradoxical situation that Russian culture is actually very elitist. It's not popular at all. Uh, if you take Pushkin and compare it him to Shevchenko, there is complete difference because Pushkin is very elitist. Uh, Pushkin is rather a product of the salon culture, very French-speaking. Uh, the aesthetics of Pushkin is rather the aesthetics of the French Rococo. Uh, and Pushkin is known by heart by primarily intellectuals. Uh, he's cherished in, in, um, in universities, in cities, etc. Whereas in Ukraine, Taras Shevchenko is a very, very profoundly popular. You, there are lots of stories when people have his portrait in, in, their, in their houses, in their village houses, in the hatas. Lots of stories that people knew his poems by heart in the same way as the new popular songs, the, the folk songs. So as my friend uh, Andriy Bondar, Ukrainian writer, once said that Shevchenko is more folkloric than the folklore itself, or he is more linked to the nation than the, the, the nation itself. 
And I think that that makes a profound difference, that actually Russian intelligentsia was too far away from, from the nation, from the, from the people, and the, it failed to, to construct a Russian nation which would be different from the state and imperial structures. And therefore, for a Russian citizen, it is very difficult to imagine him or herself without the state, without Putin, without the Tsar, without hierarchy. Whereas for Ukrainian, it's very easy to imagine ourselves without hierarchy, without, uh, without, uh, without a state. So uh, I, I do think that despite this kind of a urbanism, there is this huge difference between elites and the people. And therefore, this makes the people uh, so much cruel uh, and kind of uh, uncultivated. Um, but this makes, uh, and this explains why Russian soldiers are so cruel. Uh, and on the very profound level. But on the other hand, this also explains why Russian intelligence is so helpless. Because actually it, it doesn't have any influence on, on its own people. It's too much, too far away from it. And in, in a way this explains what is happening now. Why, why there is silence, why there is not... No, uh, no protests against the war, uh, not even inside Russia, but even outside Russia, because basically they're, they're, they're feeling helpless. It also goes some way to explain, doesn't it, that for many decades, Western academia, media, journalists who perhaps, you know, lived in Moscow, St. Petersburg, had a circle of friends from the intelligentsia, you know, they might watch films like Tarkovsky and Eisenstein, which most normal people wouldn't have wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have seen or engaged with at all and so we have this distorted impression of of russia and distorted impression of its civilization um and that persists i think in the media today even you know overestimating its military capabilities overestimating the penetration of sort of culture and sophistication down into society and to some extent you still see this in, in you know, the, the shock and surprise of reporters like, why aren't there protests, etc. We are projecting our own values, our own ways of behaving onto Russia and expecting them to be the same. And we're shocked when when they're not. Yes, of course, I, I, I don't have any kind of a, this. I'm not in this inevitability logic. I do hope that... Uh, Things will change, and uh, but we need to to give a diagnosis to that, and we, I think we need to conceptualize this. And one of the way of conceptualizing that is that currently Russian Russia doesn't have a nation. Uh, Russia only has an empire. Russia doesn't have a nation, a political nation, which is political nation is a constituted in 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 its relations with with the sovereign, whether it can challenge the sovereign when when it is needed, and. Uh, uh, at this moment, we don't see that. It doesn't mean that it will, won't happen. But we also need to understand, I think, is that uh, at a certain moment of time, Russians will need to choose they, whether they want nation or they want an empire. So the paradox is that uh, Russian, Russian empire tried to create the Russian nation. Uh, through the ideas of the 19th century, through the ideas of this... Uh, Russian nation, which comprises great Russians, white Russians, and, and, and little Russians, Ukrainians. Then through the idea of the Soviet people in the 20th century. So this was all 
the the attempts to create the Russian nation through this through the state, top down, and I think they failed. But a, a true question about Russia is what they will choose, whether they will choose to become a nation or they will choose to become an empire. Uh, because right now it's an uh, an empire with nationalism, with Russian nationalism, but without a nation. And if in Russia, if Russians say one day, okay, we choose to be a community, we choose to be a nation, we, we choose to be a nation where we are constructed through horizontal ties and, and not through the ties of our relations with the with the Tsar, with the sovereign, that will pose big questions for them. For example, the size. I mean, again, coming back to the classics of political thought, uh, you, you cannot really have a democracy when you have a huge territory like that. Uh, let's read Montesquieu, let's read Rousseau, let's, and, and le let's read also Russian thinkers themselves, because Russian thinkers themselves, like Eurasianists, uh, primarily develop the idea of authoritarian Russia, because if you want Russia to be big, then uh, you forget about democracy. And therefore, as my friend, Ukrainian philosopher Vakhtan Kibuladze uh, once said, uh, the idea should be let's make Russia small again. So let's let's, uh, and, and this is what Russians need to want if if they really want a Russian state in which there will be much less of violence towards themselves uh, than there is it today. So they will need to face a very difficult dilemma. And I, I don't really see the reflection among Russian emigres, Russian intelligentsia uh, to, to reflect upon that. And I don't really see that also in the Western world, this uh, sober thinking about Russia. I, I don't really see it. I, I rather see the hope that, okay, things will get into normal one day and probably Putin will die and, uh, and all the rest. I mean, this this very much reflects, uh, and I don't want to just talk about. I want to get back onto Ukraine because it's not uh, it's not fair talking about Russia endlessly. And I know many journalists fall into that trap. I mean, the problem is you've got this, um, you know, malign, uh, dysfunctional neighbor, and I guess to some extent, you know, we have to consider its future. But I think Navalny and opposition fall into that trap as well. Um, now, he actually uses that phrase of, you know, Russia will be normal, Russia will be happy, Russia will be this, that and the other. And it's fairly imprecise. Um, but I also think many of the opposition, um, even if they are vocalised the idea of being anti-imperial, even if they vocalise the idea of being anti-Putin, I think this idea of a big Russia holds a firm grip on most people's minds in that territory. And that includes the so-called liberal intelligentsia. Um, but let's let's move away from, from, from Russia and its ills. <coughs> because I think there's a there's another problem. And that is that a caricatured version of Ukraine appears in the Western media as well. And in your podcasts, you mentioned that there are many writers, there's much complexity of Ukrainian history, which doesn't just make it into the media, it doesn't actually make it into print in academic journals either. So as an English speaker, what are we missing out on in terms of this uh, exploration of Ukrainian identity and history? I think we are missing uh, the idea is that uh, the, the, the roots of, of Ukraine, uh, the roots of Belarus, the roots of 
and the roots of the of Georgians, of Armenians are much deeper uh, because we look at Eastern Europe through the 19th century, maybe through the 18th century, what we know is Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, who are not the great for Ukrainians, obviously, who are tyrants, uh, who, which, who destroyed the, the spirit of republic in Eastern Europe. Uh, but we need to look deeper and, and uh, we need to understand that the origins of Ukraine, well, they're very deep. They can be found in, um, in the Greek settlements of the Black Sea. They can be found in, uh, in Hazar culture, very interesting uh, Hazar, um, Hazar civilization or Hazar statehood in, in the late uh, first millennium. Uh, they can be seen in a very interesting uh, interconnection between the north and the south, between the uh, Varangians, the Vikings, and the, the Byzantine. And this is one of these aidoses how Kiev was created as a, as a powerful place, as a powerful city. And uh, there are lots of, lots of many interesting stories. Uh, there is obviously a story... Of, um, of a very uh, pluralistic uh, political culture of the medieval times in around Kiev. Where the, the Rus of Kiev was everything but empire. I think it was very much uh, closer to the idea of uh, feudal, feudal republics. Uh, and uh, then we move uh, towards... The, the other statehoods like Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in which we also see that anti-tyrannical way of thinking, anti-tyrannical approach to politics. Uh, then, of course, the Cossacks, and it's a very interesting thing. It's, it's, it's the idea of the, um, of the free warriors, uh, of the kind of a knightly culture, we can consider Ukrainian Cossacks of the 17th century as a continuation of the medieval knightly culture beyond uh, medieval times in Eastern Europe. So there are many, many interesting things to, to see before the Russian world came here. And the Russian world came here basically uh, in, in the mid-17th century, but fully, I would say, only in the early 18th century. So we are looking at this history of Eastern Europe through the past three centuries instead of, uh, s instead of looking in the millennium before. This, this process of, of starting history at the date you conquer a territory, I mean, that is, that is horrifically reminiscent of something like ISIS, isn't it? You know, eradicating all previous cultures, idols, statues, and then, you know, starting the clock at the point you, you conquer a people's it's, it's quite a sort of horrific and, and, un, and unsubtle um, sort of way way of, of thinking and acting, um, but obviously there's 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 a lot of recent history as well. And I was wondering what you think about the Orange Revolution, the Revolution of Dignity, which of course got coverage in the Western news and then slipped into the back of people's consciousnesses. In the broad sweep of history, though, do you think? these events will come to be seen as important uh, in terms of the evolution of European politics as, say, 1848, 1968, you know, student revolts, and then, of course, 1990, the fall and collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, are they, are they pivotal events in the grand scheme of things? 
I do think because I I really uh, see the parallel between with 1848 because I do think that what has happened in in Europe in the mid 19th century uh, in Central Europe primarily this will be probably we hope so be happening in the 21st century around the current European Union and um, I'm not speaking only about Ukraine I'm speaking about Belarus, I'm speaking about Moldova, I'm speaking about Georgia, I'm speaking about Middle East, I'm speaking about Maghreb. In all these countries, we have seen over the past decades, two decades, starting from early 2000s, we have seen revolutions uh, against tyranny. Uh, and in most of them, they failed. In most of them, they were defeated. And in Ukraine, they were also defeated because Orange Revolution... And then you had counter-revolution very quickly, Yanukovych back to power, and then another revolution. And uh, what we have right now is the military counter-revolution. We cannot, I mean, this is the way how we can conceptualize it. So Russians were trying to make the internal counter-revolution in Ukraine with Yanukovych several times. They failed. And uh, then they decided to make an external counter-revolution. So why Ukrainian example is important here? Because if we take 1848 revolutions, they were considered by the contemporaries as a beginning of something big, but they were actually uh, defeated. And uh, in Europe, second half of the 19th century was a Europe of authoritarianisms, uh, of the... Second Empire in France, the the, the, the the center of republicanism, and then the Austrian Empire and the Russian Empire and Prussia, and and uh, we know that that, that story, right? And uh, everything thought everybody thought that okay, the the story of revolution, the story of democracies in Europe is over. Uh, we are coming back to to empires, and in many aspects it was true. So you needed to wait up until probably this, the First World War to realize the ideas that were um, in in these European nations in 1848. So we need to think very long term. Uh, and sometimes you see that counter-revolution wins over the revolution, but it doesn't stop this process. Uh, but sometimes you need to, to, to you know, to, to, to fight for decades or to wait for decades. And I personally think that this is uh, this is something which will be going on in uh, in uh, in the Mediterranean and Eastern Europe in the coming decades. I I do hope so. I uh, and and that means that Ukraine is not alone. Ukraine is rather an, an example uh, which shows that uh, despite all the defeats uh, in other places, the spirit of freedom can win and even can win and can stay resilient despite the external invasion. And therefore, there is a lot of sympathy in Ukraine towards this process, like like the protests in Hong Kong, uh, like the, the uh, like Taiwan, like, uh, like Iranian protests. I mean, there is lots of echo in Ukraine towards the Iranian pro protests. It, there is a lot of coverage, there are lots of interest. The same with Hong Kong uh, several years ago, uh, and um, and I, 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 therefore I do think that these these revolutions are not are important not only for Ukraine; they're important in a much global scale. And of course, territories like 
Georgia, which are trying to sort of pull themselves out of that sort of post-Soviet imperial uh, influence still. Belarus, which of course is uh, from that territory, Uh, Ukraine is being attacked, but nonetheless, there's an an equivalent struggle going on for Belarus. So Belarus... There are, of course, difficult relations right now between Ukrainians and Belarusians, obviously, for for these reasons. There are something that Belarusians reproach to Ukrainians, and, and rightly so. Uh, there is also many things Ukrainians reproaching to Belarusians, also rightly so. Um, but uh, I do hope that the, uh, the, the protests in Belarus were also a sign of something else. So we have a revolution... Uh, in Georgia has been defeated as well. We now have a very ugly counter-revolution regime in Georgia, and it lasts for quite a long time already. Uh, But I do hope that the seeds that were born in the Revolution of uh, Roses in 2003 uh, will actually bring results later. The same with Moldova. There were revolution in Moldova, there were counter-revolution, there was Dodon pro-Russian. Now there is, again, a pro-European government, but quite unstable and everything can happen. So we can we, we are in this fragile situation. Uh, and Belarus, obvious example, that the counter-revolution, Lukashenko, has become much, much more tyrannical, much more cruel and much more pro-Russian, obviously, and has become a, a, is now a clear danger for Ukraine. Therefore, Ukrainian example really, I hope, gives hope to to many other people that uh, that uh, these protests, that democracy can stand. It can um, uh, even when it goes through counter revolutions, even I- when it goes through the backlash, it can regain strength and then and then fight even even the external enemy. Therefore, I do think that Ukraine is now a key state. Uh, for the future of democracy, again, let me say, in 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 the wider Europe or wider even Mediterranean space and Black Sea uh, Black Sea space, it has of course been claimed by some. Vlad Vexler is is one particularly who talks about this a lot, and that is a decline in the democratic values in the West and in the US and the UK in particular over the last couple of years. And one aspect of this that that, that certainly I think is true is the labeling, the left-right labeling, Brexit remainer, you know, putting labels, putting people into boxes as a way of sort of denigrating them and reducing their their, their views uh, to being valueless. Um, very sort of tribal, very confrontational uh, type of, of politics. Um, what's impressed me about speaking to Ukrainians is that whether they're on the so-called left or the centre-right or the centre, there seems to be a sense of values that supersede these labels, that actually the idea of increasing freedom the idea of reducing corruption and improving things like civil society, judicial reforms, and so on. People have a concept that there are higher values than the traditional knockabout left and right labels. And to an extent, I think in Britain and America, tribalism is 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 reducing these sort of universal values and processes down and, and turning politics into a fairly destructive and cartoonish uh, sort of version of it uh, again do you think we can we can learn from uh, what ukraine is going through look uh, 
let's over not overestimate because things are things are changing, right? And uh, I remember when I mean, if you take twenty twenty ten, the election of Yanukovych, Ukraine was profoundly divided. It was divided in two. There was a fair election, and on the fair election, majority of people over. I mean, the half of the people, half of citizens, chose the criminal, pro-Russian, bastard, you know. And, uh, yeah, it, it took some years to uh, for those even who voted for him to understand how bad he was. At that time, I remember, if you take 2000s, then the, the common narrative in Ukraine was, oh, we are so divided, look at Poland, how united they are. Oh, we are so divided about EU membership and NATO membership. Look at Poles and Baltic states, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, how united they are in their way to the EU and NATO. Then look at Ukraine now and look at Poland. I mean, Poland is much more divided than Ukraine. Uh, Britain is much more divided than Ukraine, etc. But it doesn't mean that it will be always like that. And uh, actually, uh, again, coming back to the first question uh, of course we need to be realistic and we need to to be to try to be objective and uh, the war brings lots of consolidation lots of solidarity but it also brings lots of tiny tiny differences tiny uh, controversies which can reappear in the future and they are not related to ideology they are rather related to experience and to actions what did you do during the war? Uh, what what did you experience? What did you suffer, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, in this way, I mean, uh, yes, Ukraine can be an example in the way uh, as it shows that look, uh, there is something more important uh, at at a certain moment, and when this something important comes, and usually it's 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 a threat for your existence, it's an existential situation. Then you need to to put aside your differences, and this is what Ukraine is showing right now. Interestingly enough, it didn't show it in some other moments of its history, like one one century ago when there was a, an existential threat, when the Bolsheviks were attacking Ukraine, and uh, and there was no unity. Now we have this unity, and it's good. But I think what European world, American world, should also realize that uh, it's also under attack. Maybe it's a different type of attack, but it's also attack on its values, and uh, you need to defend itself. Uh, you need to defend itself with uh, with with the new tools, uh, with uh, sometimes maybe with weapons, sometimes maybe with consolidation, sometimes maybe with the, with the fight against the egoism, with the uh, more idea of a, of, a, of of the public good, of the common good. Because what you're describing is these divides between left and right are also mm, the, the consequence of this inability to look wider. And, and, and this is, when, when I see as an external observer, I look at the way how uh, people in America who are against Trump, uh, I'm also kind of a don't like Donald Trump, right? But... Uh, I understand the reasons why certain number of Americans would go uh, for him because there are real problems like problems, economical problems, uh, 
delocalization, uh, Americans suffering from their own globalization, etc. The same with Brexit. So, of course, there should be bridges to understand the other side. And I hope they will come because we are really now, we are. I think we are entering the world of the new polarization, uh, of the new global conflict, and this bipolar or multipolar world that Russia is preaching is actually will be a world of violence. It's, it's, it's not like it will coexist peacefully. It will rather be the world very similar to the European imperial world in the late 19th century. And um, in this world, you need not only... You, you need to, 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 to keep both capacities to talk but also to fight when it is needed. And I think that's clear, isn't it? Ukraine, uh, when victory comes, which I think everyone watching this channel is assured that there will be uh, victory and Ukraine will be in a dominant position in whatever negotiations might follow. Nonetheless, Ukraine is going to be on the front line, not just economically, politically, but it's going to be on the military front line of Europe, um, almost a sort of fortress uh, border um, against what is bound to be, I think, decades of of chaos, disorder, and potentially violence emanating from from your uh, unruly neighbour. Yes, and unfortunately, Ukraine is accustomed to be this border. I mean, um, this is a very, I would repetitive thought that Ukraine is a borderland, and I'm 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 a bit tired of this thought, you know, because it's it's not very good to be on the borderland. There is something very interesting comes from the borderlands, but usually something very bloody. Um, but. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I mean, one of the elements of history is when borderland becomes a something, I would not say center, but something from which certain processes are starting. And uh, I think Britain was <laughs> this part, this this country, let's say, in Elizabethan era, like Britain showed how you can turn from the borderland into something central. And um, I think, yeah... We can look at this upcoming Ukrainian history with, uh, with lots of uh, expectations like this. But we can, we should also understand that we can, uh, we can fall into the repetition of of the previous history when being a borderland was actually meant that Ukraine is in this virtual circle of violence, trauma, remembering violence, new violence, etc. And I think, of course, we need to overcome that. Well, I think that's a good place to end. That's the kind of what if question with with a, a degree of optimism, at least for the future. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to you for, for spending the time talking. I think I got through about a tenth of my questions. So hopefully we'll get the chance to, to speak again. We didn't even touch upon literature and narratives, but um, I think we covered some incredibly interesting topics there. Um, I strongly advise people to check out your podcast. We'll put the link in the description below. You also write a lot of articles uh, in Western media and of course academic journals. So um, I really encourage people to check those out. Thank you and Slava Ukraini. Thank you very much.